Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 243. Had to think about it there for a second. I'm your co-host, Derek Moore. With me once again in the seat is my semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pestercelli, fresh off the uh, the road. You were at the the Options Risk Conference this week. How you doing, Jay? I'm doing well, Derek. Yes, I know. I feel like uh, it's been months since I've been here. I'm, has it been months? It's been, what, two weeks? Maybe. I was, it has been, it has been two weeks since these listeners will have heard that. But yeah, by the way, not too much going on. I say that with a smile. No, a lot going on. Let's start here. Uh, This, you were just at the conference and one of the things you were seeing was a lot of talk about how options are growing in popularity, growing in, in new ETFs that are forming using options. But it got me thinking because, you know, normally, 60-40 or any bond and stock uh, build, the whole idea is that that bonds go up when stocks go down. And so when you rebalance, you sell more of the stuff that went up, i.e. the bonds and bought more equities. Not the case this time. Stocks and bonds are correlated. And so, and bonds are performing horribly because of the rise in rates. So Jay, it's just kind of a, a bizarro thing where people who are rebalancing whether it's monthly or quarterly, whenever they're doing it, using traditional stock bond portfolios, especially longer duration, as bonds are going down, they're actually selling more stocks to buy more bonds. And then as bonds go down again, they have to sell more stocks to buy more bonds. Like It's not supposed to be that way, Jay, which is probably why they talked about it at the conference. Yeah, we definitely talked. It is the risk management conference that SIBO puts on, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. Uh, every year. It's one of the things that uh, we always go to at Zega. We really like to hear what the rest of the industry is doing, portfolio managers, market makers, you know, money managers, all sorts of interesting folks. Uh, a lot of discussion around, you know, how traditional risk management is failed people the last year or two and continues to do that. Uh, so then, yeah, just a lot of discussion around how derivatives can help uh, offset certain risks, right? Helps you really identify it. Talking about some complicated concepts of, you know, you want to have dispersion in your portfolio versus correlation, and those are those, those are a lot of syllables in those words, right? But it, the the point was, um, you have to look for new ways to, you know, manage the risk in your portfolio. Um, one of the big topics was cash. Like, should we go to cash? Should we not go to cash? And you know, a lot of discussion around. You know, with your giving up being in cash, and of course, you know we're all money managers there, so none of us think cash is a great solution. But we all know it's a more interesting topic now with rates where they are than it was, say, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. So you know, you have to if you're going to provide value as uh, as someone who's actually making investment decisions, you got to find it in different places than where you looked before. So really interesting, interesting stuff at the conference. I would say the industry is absolutely tuned in. To what is going on intraday in treasuries. I'm trying to think back two, three, I've been going to this conference for seven years. No one ever talked about treasuries. So it's, it's, it's nice to see the, the pulse, uh, uh, the fingers on the pulse with, with really some of the smartest people on Wall Street. Yeah, no, and it's, I think not even knowing, and, and as I was doing the prepping of the show, I, you know, you and I, we do this, we write down topics or I said, it's just really interesting, and I'm this whole rebalancing thing. Like it's it's almost like the way stocks and bonds are acting, you continually are 
are being, you're almost overweight bonds because you're lost on bonds and then you got to sell more equity to buy more bonds. You know what I mean? It's just, they're not doing what they're intended to do. And this is what happens when correlations go higher, but this is a rate story. And I think a lot of managers who maybe haven't been in the business that long, I remember in the 90s, I, I wasn't managing money in, in the late 70s, or early 80s, but I remember higher rates. So it's just, I don't know. I, I think it just shows that there is a need for other approaches, other hedging approaches to manage risk and kind of why we buy and hedge, Jay, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's so many more tools at our disposal now, uh, whether it's, you know, you, whether it's directly using options and derivatives yourself or even using funds that incorporate uh, options, right? There are tail risk funds out there that you can just buy. You don't have to be the expert. Let the experts do it and you buy their fund. There are hedged equity funds like those, some of the ones we run that have upside exposure and the hedge is built in. You buy the fund, right? It's okay. You do, as long as you know that you know the world is kind of evolving, and you know the last three years that idea of uh, sixty forty stocks and bonds with that kind of a mix is. I think this will probably be the third year in a row that that's going to fail, right? That's not really happened before. And by the way, stocks can be correlated to bonds. That is. That is not, you know, we're not in this, you know, absolutely unusual situation. Oh, more often than people realize. They're, they're correlated much more often than people realize, Jay. They re that's right. That's right. Except this time they're all correlated on the way down, right? And everyone's going, what's happening? Nobody cared when they were correlated on the way up. No. Right? But they're correlated now on the way down and it's just making it harder, right? For, for people to use that as a tactic of offsetting risk. By the way, somebody sent me a, a, a great quote and, uh, they said, this person must have been really smart. And the quote was, there is a real possibility that we are setting up for a lost decade with respect to bonds, total returns. And I failed to realize that was actually the opening sentence in my book, Broken Pie Chart, from the chapter, Why Bonds Past Performance Can't Equal Future Results. I forgot it was even my quote, Jay. But look, <laughs> this shouldn't... Brilliant. So you impressed yourself. It's great. <laughs> I did. I said, man, I, that person must be really smart. No, I mean, the other thing I would just, I keep saying this, and Jay, we're not going to do a big deep dive on bonds. We'll talk a little bit about bonds later. But it, it's just, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise, given how low rates were, if you had any bout of inflation or any rise in rates. Like, this is simply what happens. This shouldn't be a surprise. Shouldn't be a surprise. No, I, you know, it's funny, Derek, I'm going to, I'm going to give you credit. I mean, I'm going to take a little bit of credit on this. We have been talking now, uh, nine months, uh, about the fact of, look, rates don't have to go down in order for the curve to, you know, uninvert. Right. And what we're seeing now is the market starting to go, huh, maybe, you know, the way that the, 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 the curve you know, normalizes is by longer ended rates going higher. And the market is, you know, digesting that right now as a real possibility. Jay, you sent me something earlier this morning, uh, West Coast time, 4 a.m. So I know you were up early uh, where you were. And <laughs> Jay, you send me stuff for the audience. You send me stuff all the time. Doesn't mean my alerts are on, you know. I, yeah, this wasn't a weird thing for me to send you something at 4 in the morning. I do it all the time. It only it makes up for the fact that I send you stuff at like one o'clock East Coast time when I'm when I'm still doing stuff. So 
But you sent me this, it was a good piece from the Wall Street Journal. And, and uh, there was also a piece from Bloomberg. And the question the Bloomberg article asked, is the bond market running sort of rates and, and the markets, or is Jay Powell running rates and the markets? And I would say that really the market is, is, is in charge right now. Yeah. And I, I don't think Jay Powell is upset about that. Right. No. I mean, he had the interview. He does. He does this uh, annual interview at the uh, the New York Sports Club. Right. Where he does that. Uh, the, the, he talks about it's almost like a mini, you know, Fed meeting. Right. Yeah. And uh, he, he, you know, he talked about like, ah, yeah, this is kind of the way it's supposed to be. And this is going to help, you know, reduce economic activity to beat down inflation. He's still all in on trying to beat down inflation. Right. I feel like he hasn't wavered on that at all. But. I'm not sure he's necessarily upset that the market is like now doing his job for him that he's been trying to communicate for so long. And it's been a long time. It's been over a year. Remember when he yelled at everybody in August of 2022? He didn't yell, but he kind of is like, you're not listening to me. It was like one of the shortest uh, uh, press conferences like he's had. Was it like seven minutes, six minutes? And basically said, listen, everybody, uh, rates are going to be higher for a while. Like, I don't know why y'all think it's going to go down, right? And then walked off and then the market proceeded to just, you know, bury itself. But yeah, like, I think he's probably um, encouraged that he now doesn't have to act. He still has to just stick with the line of higher for longer. We got to beat down rates. And the market is starting to do his job for him. Now, what we haven't seen is actually the impact yet, right? We had a great claims number this week, right? Like the lowest jobless claim number uh, you know, in a long time, uh, you know, retail sales up more than expected. Like the, the economic activity has not yet, uh, waned from, uh, this process, this scenario of higher for longer. We all know, well, I shouldn't say we all know, we always assume we take the position that the markets will be ahead of the actual economy. So, you know, six months ago, the markets were still kind of just about to start their rip higher. Uh, you know, and we kind of topped out in, uh, you know, in July, but we started that that run in May. So we're coming up on the six months ahead of time. So, you know, as we see the market kind of pulling back now uh, over the last three months, you know, maybe that is when we start to see the economic activity slow down. Who knows, right? It's not an exact predictor, but you know, I, back to your point, I think he's happy that the markets are taking over uh, the interest rate story from him. The other part of this is uh, we don't, I mean, in the U.S., we don't do currency interventions necessarily. The Fed is is not going in and buying bonds right now. In fact, they're letting bonds run off their balance sheet. I, I don't believe they're actually actively selling bonds, but they're letting them run off. Jay, earlier this week, the Bank of Japan on Wednesday had an unscheduled bond buying. That means that they're going in and buying uh, the Japanese central bank, buying bonds, trying to, to keep the yields lower, meaning buy bonds, bonds go up, yields go down, that type of thing. Their bond yield on the 10-year, the JGB, is, is pushing 0.9% now, just a little bit under. And the, the yield is up after they started the, the intervention. It's a good signal for me that the, the market is in charge here, Jay. And I, I can't make the same correlation here, but maybe with the way that auctions are, are being 
you know, issued. Uh, we had a, a 20 year auction that was received pretty well, but you know, some of these auctions bonds are going out, you know, below par, the, the bids are not quite there as they once were. So I think these are two instant, two examples. The market's in charge. It's not Jay Powell, but I agree, Jay, he is more than happy to, uh, to, to ride the tails of the higher rates to do what he wants to do. Right, Jay? I mean, he wants you to lose your job and he wants you to stop buying stocks. And he wants you to, I say that sarcastically, but like they don't want the economy to do too well. Right. It's too hot. Of course. He's said that. And he's even said there's going to have to be a little pain as well. I he agree. Said that too. Speaking of pain, uh, mortgage rates. And Ouch. You know what? Yeah, let me do this. And then I want to. I want to talk about a little volatility stuff too, but let me, let me just kind of finish while we're on bonds. Mortgages, the, so when people go on and they look at a mortgage, the rates are above 8% now. There is an index, which sort of, I don't know how they build it, but it, it looks at mortgages all around and it's, it's hit above 8% right now. What's interesting to me though, I keep, uh, I calculate every once in a while, the spread between the 30-year mortgage and the 10-year treasury yield. So 10-year treasury yields are right around 5%. If your mortgage is 8%, uh, 8% the, the spread is 300 basis points or 3%. This is two and a half standard deviations above the average. Average is about uh, 170 bips or 1.7%. And this goes back to 1971 is when I have the data from. And I have a theory on this. And I, I think the reason is it, it deals with the MBS market. So mortgage-backed securities, these are products that are, you know, think about you sell a mortgage and a bond buys a bunch of these mortgages, wraps it all up, and it's, it's a mortgage-backed security, right? So won't get too much into that. But mortgage-backed securities right now, they have, okay, here's, here's a little, little 101. I'll try and do this as simply as I can for a podcast audience. Mortgage-backed securities are essentially bonds. They're fixed income. Most times, bonds, like treasuries or corporate bonds, when rates go, the further rates go down, the more they accelerate up in price. Rates go down, bonds go up. But the lower that, that yields are, the greater the impact from a change, a one-point change in interest rates. MBS bonds actually work a little bit differently. And the reason why they work differently is they typically have what's called negative convexity. I'll explain that in a second. But as yields go higher, the sensitivity to, to interest rates changes differently. And what you see is durations actually elongate. And the reason why that is in simple terms, think about it, Jay, like if you are, let's say you're buying a bunch of mortgages and one of the mortgages is mine. Well, if I have a 3% mortgage and interest rates go to 8% or the, or the mortgage rates go to 8%, I'm not refinancing that. You will take that from my cold, dead hands before I give that up. So unless I have to move or I want, you know, whatever it is, I'm staying in that. So what happens is when rates are going down, loans are prepaid, they're refinanced. And so duration actually drops. It's an interesting phenomenon. And I mentioned convexity. Convexity is just, it's a really fancy term. 
but all it is, it measures the change in duration for a given change in rates. Positive convexity says that, hey, when duration, uh, duration lengthens, durations get increased. And when we say duration gets increased, the sensitivity, the risk or gain from a change in rates also arises. When bonds have negative convexity, uh, duration actually lowers. Sensitivity to changes in rates goes lower as rates fall. So typically, MBS are opposite from regular bonds. But Jay, I haven't seen this going back to the mid-90s ever, where MBSs have positive convexity. So I usually give you a lot of technical stuff that I've tried to really simplify. But Jay, maybe there's a... Maybe we can stop there for a second and, and clean this well, up. Well, yeah, no, no. I think I think you did a great job explaining it, Professor. Uh, so basically, when you have low rates, people hold on to it longer. Short rates, they want to get out of it sooner, right? Uh, when they have higher rates, they want to get out of it sooner, right? I mean, that makes a ton of sense. That's behavior that anybody that's ever uh, had a mortgage understands, and that impacts the value of that mortgage, right? Because Right. When you when you buy a bond. Right. I mean, the expectation is it's going to be held to maturity, but that's not the case when it comes to mortgage backed securities. Right. So I I think you did a good job explaining that, Derek. Now, I don't know what it implies that we now have, you know, positive convexity. I'm like, what is what does that imply now? Does that imply that the mortgage backed securities that are being held today are now riskier because are they more sensitive when they shouldn't normally be? Or are they less sensitive? Well, I was talking to Mark Pulowski, uh, one of the analysts over at State Street. I have a frequent call with them, as, as I know you're on those uh, sometimes as well, our partners at, at State Street. That, uh, and he actually, I got to be honest with you, I didn't really catch that this had gone positive, but he mentioned it and I was shocked. And, you know, it's nice to be shocked every once in a while. But one of the things that he was making a point of, he said, look, a lot, think about all the bonds that are out there. The, I mean, the amount of bonds, the percentage of mortgages that are outstanding that are above 5% right now is, is still pretty low. And so one of the things he pointed out is that even if rates go down, a lot of these bonds are not going to get refinanced. So durations uh, may actually stay higher even if rates go down on here. Ah, we're normally... Normally, people will be like, oh, rates are down. Let me refinance and get out of the one I have. But they're not going to go low enough to where they were in, say, 2020 and 2021. This is very unusual. Like, if it wasn't complex and if it wasn't MBSs, this would be on CNBC being like, this has never happened. You know, actually, I only have data going back to 97. So, but I was, it, anyway, so it, it's just, it's one of those things that there's all the, these going from such low rates to high rates, and then having this stuff happen right now, it's creating these anomalies in the markets and things that people haven't seen before. I was surprised by this. And I remember higher rates in, in the 90s. So I don't know, but I, I think it also goes to the reason why, you know, in, in theory, if, if it was the average spread, uh, tenure at 5%, 1.7%, you'd expect the 30-year the mortgage to be what? 6.7%. It's not. It's two and a half, you know, it's 300 basis points now. But I, I think this also has to do with demand, right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Weren't you telling me you had, I mean, I it seems like they don't even want 
some of these loans. So maybe that's part of it too. Like they're just saying they're jacking it up. It's like, Hey, if you want a loan, you gotta, you're going to pay us this go for it. You know, I mean, have you seen that Jay? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's right. We have a client that uh, was getting a loan for a property and uh, it was a, an investment property, but still planning on getting a loan. And what he told me was that the rate was, it's higher than regular mortgage rates because of the commercial kind of treated like a commercial loan, but still higher, eight and a half, eight and three quarters. And in, the, in order to even get the loan, he had to put down over, you know, more than a point. So there is a fee on top of an outrageous rate. And you're right. I, th- I think the mortgage companies are like, look, like if we're going to make a loan, we know you're not going to hold it very long. We know this. Everybody knows this. You're going to refinance this. But you're going to pay, you know, points again, but it will even be worth it to pay. You know, this was a fairly large loan. He's going to pay, you know, five figures to get out of that loan and roll it to a lower rate. So, but they made it expensive to even get into it. So you're right. I think, um, uh, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting spot. And this is one, and we've talked about this. This is one of the areas that we, we do think that Jay Powell is impacted, right? The real estate market. And it's for reasons like this, that the money, it just doesn't make sense to put your money. It, it's hard to make sense to put your money into, uh, into property when you're paying, uh, you know, such a high, high rate. And even if you don't plan to pay it too long, they're taking their pound of flesh out of the gate. And look, if you want the loan, then that's what you're going to pay today. So, and sometimes people need to do the loan. It is interesting too, when you look at when this really spikes, I mean, the, the late seventies into the, in, you know, 79, 81 inflation times, uh, you look at during market upheaval, uh, I see, you know, 2008, you see a spike up to just below 300 basis point spread. We had it during 2020. We can't say the during during the the sickness. If you say the the c word, then we get slapped with something. Um, and then, you know, right now. So I think this tends to cluster the widening of the spread during times of uncertainty, and it may have something to do with not only MBSs but just some of the regional bank balance sheets as well. But um, yeah, we won't spend too much time on convexity. That's a good way for people to. Uh, to tune out. To stop but. listening. <laughs> <laughs> Convexity is like explaining gamma when it comes to uh, to option Greeks. I will mention though, on, on the fixed income front, we know that long duration treasuries are really getting hammered. I pulled up a chart uh, the other day, Jay, just the total returns comparing different asset classes within or different types of fixed income. Over the last three years, the 20-year-plus treasury ETF is down something like 42, 42% plus. Uh, I believe that that's total return, including dividends. At the same time, and, and I mentioned State Street, we use in our ZBIG strategies, uh, so, so the buffered index growth, where we use um, very short-duration high yield. We take that income to buy uh, long exposure to the market. I mean, over the last three years, uh, senior loans, are up, you know, close to 11% total return, you know, including dividends. And, that, and that's, I think the current yield on that is something like 9.2%. And by the way, I'm not telling you to buy it. I'm just, we're, for the point of the discussion. But I mean, it's, you're, it's you're just- not, not, not all parts of the uh, fixed income world are, are in, a, in a state of disaster. Is that your point? Well, yeah. And, and sure, I mean, senior loans and, and uh, you know, uh, junk bonds as well, or, or uh, high yield bonds, uh, which are also up 
also up. But I think this is one of these, like if somebody had said, hey, I know interest rates are going to go crazy and I know all this stuff is going to happen. Like if you were betting against things, you'd probably say, oh, there'll be a flight to quality and people will sell, you know, the high yield stuff. Nope. The inverse. Surprise. It really is. It it is the inverse. And and there's been a lot of talk about, okay, the big rotation out of uh, high yield debt is coming, all the refinance of high yield debt is coming. It doesn't seem, and we've talked about that in other other, uh, uh, podcasts, but it doesn't seem to be really impacting performance yet. Uh, not again, not making that recommendation. At some point, we'll have to pay attention to it. It might be a scenario where it'll matter when it matters. But so far, it doesn't look like high yield debt is uh, is paying the price like the highest quality debt is paying. There's another interesting fact that came up on on our call with with uh, with Mark, and I don't remember if I came up with it or he came up with it. It's probably him. It's just an insight, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But I I, I jotted it down, and it's. You know, senior loans, the way they work is they are variable rates, rate loans. So as rates have gone up, typically those loans are, they're based, they used to be based on LIBOR, but either one or three month LIBOR slash SOFR, and then there's a margin. So in a weird way, like the companies that have senior loans in the books and, and as part of their debt structure, like they're almost battle tested. Like they've, they've actually had the impact of higher rates already, where corporate bonds in general, you know, you just mentioned the debt maturity, the walls that are coming up, meaning they're going to have to refinance a lot of this low debt in the next couple of years. It I just, I don't know what it means yet, but I just thought it was interesting. And I, and I put in quotes, they've kind of been interest rate tested. Think about that. I don't know what it means yet, but. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know either. I, I'm not there. I'm going to digest that one, Derek. We did a lot about bonds. I'm gonna I'm gonna digest. I want to get back to you on that one. Well, and we'll uh, we'll be waiting for that. No, I, I'm I'm I feel the same way as you. I wrote it down. It was it's significant enough that I wrote it down as a thought, and I said, "Hmm." And, it, and it, yeah, let's talk about volatility, and then we'll come back to some general market stuff. We're in earnings season right now, Jay, and wow, what a difference! I mean, Tesla had earnings disappointed. I don't know. There's some, I don't know what T- Elon said about the Cybertruck. Maybe you do. And then Netflix is the other one that's surprised to the upside. Jay, I know you were looking at some data on just, you know, before the earnings announcement for Net- Netflix, the shortest uh, to expiration options were the ones with two days left. What were you kind of seeing there right before, right before earnings? Yeah, uh, I mean, it was uh, it really is a tale of two stocks, and I don't want to get into the fundamental or the reasons why each stock did what they did. But I think the last two days after Tesla's earnings, Tesla's down fifteen percent, and Netflix is up like fifteen, right? So really, the opposite direction on the two of those. Um, but interesting when you look at the options market, they were uh, they were predicting some pretty wide moves, right, in both of them. Uh, there's probably a lot of people that thought they would have been exactly the opposite moves that happened, but the, the size of those moves, the implied move was interesting. So for example, Netflix, uh, kind of going in right before expiration, when you look at the options market on that, um, the the implied move was an 8% move. 
And so if you were saying like, oh, that's a pretty wide single day move. Yeah, Netflix has done that in the past. And you sold that, you would have found yourself on the wrong side of that trade because it moved 17%, I think 15, 17% the very next day. So this is very normal, right? For you to see a higher uh, premium on options going right into earnings. Now, before there were weeklies, you know, this was a little muted because you might have, you know, three weeks before uh, earnings. But we were looking at the earnings that, uh, sorry, we were looking at the options that expired just two days after the announcement. And you definitely see a disproportionate amount of volatility and premium, that means how expensive the options are, in those options uh, going, uh, you know, right before the earnings announcement. So, uh, by the way, I will say afterwards, the exact opposite happens, right? Once you get the event that has happened, then the option volatility, we like to say the volatility gets sucked out of the chain. A giant vacuum sound takes all of the risk premium right out of, uh, right out, right out of them. So you, let's, let's talk about Netflix for a moment. Cause that's kind of the one that I'm talking about right now. I, I think, um, going in to uh Derek you were nice enough to get this data for me to talk about a little bit going into earnings we saw like 127% implied volatility that's very high typically you know Netflix is around i don't know 35 40 so going in you have this huge premium and then now that the news is out this is I'm talking about Friday afternoon you know now it's back down to like that 30 level right so if you were the, if you were a buyer of options you know, you just had a lot of premium taken out of it. But if you bought the right one, you actually got paid. You should have taken that money off the table fairly quickly. That's kind of the way it goes when you're you're going to pay up so for so much on those kind of options. When you get the move that the market was implying, you definitely want to be able to take some of that off the table. Uh, but, you know, it, it's just one of those normal dynamics that we see all the time. It doesn't necessarily predict direction. It just predicts large moves. The same thing with Tesla. We saw implied volatility on the rise weeks uh, going into that earnings uh, announcement. And then, uh, you know, then the move, it just went down instead of up. But the market, the options market was starting to uh, be willing to pay up. I'm not going to say betting on a big move, but it just means that people buying those options were willing to pay more because they had anticipated a bigger move. It's kind of the general uh, idea of it, uh, of what we saw going in here. It's, it's interesting because when people start learning about options, they t- you know, maybe the first trade is uh, they sell a covered call or they go out and they buy a, a put or a call. And one of the things I remember and you and I, when we used to be, um, you know, running the, the, the educa- national education, the trading education over at TD, we would always have questions. Hey, everyone knows there's going to be a big move in earnings. Why not buy a put and buy a call simultaneously because you know you're going to get a big move? And what you just described is great because the market already knows there's going to be a big move. It was implying 8%. So someone says, oh, I'm going to buy or sell. I used to call this, I think I wrote an article at some point. I don't know where it is, uh, the most dangerous trade. And that trade is somebody says, I'm going to buy a put and buy a call called a straddle or a strangle on, let's say, Netflix right before earnings. And the cost of that was close to $29, or the credit that you would get was close to $29. It's a dangerous trade because you could be right and sell this, 
and you could be wrong and, and buy it. And in this case, as you mentioned, if you bought it, you would have made money. You would have had to sell it quick because volatility comes out of it. But I, I just know, Jay, that, and I know you see, you've seen this as well. It's the whole, oh, yeah, things are going to move. Like the options market knows this. The options market is adjusting the, the premiums in there. And it's already factored in. So Netflix, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. It was, it was roughly a 17% move. So, but if you were a seller, not a great day to be a seller. Better day to be a buyer. Next time it might flip, right? It, it, it's it, right. That's the thing. You're not, you know, it's, there's no guarantee that the options market is right, but you certainly will see a trend on when there's an expectation of a larger move versus a smaller move. Um, yeah, it's, that's uh, the interesting thing about options. I, Derek, I can't tell you how many times we've had people who said, look, I, was, I thought it was going to go up and I bought the calls and it went up and I still didn't make money. Yeah, they were expensive. You didn't buy the right calls, which, by the way, it just you know means you probably took more speculative risk versus you know a hedged, hedged approach, all those kinds of things. Well, imagine you bought you know a five percent out of the money call, and the move was implying eight percent, but it was only a three percent move, and you're now you're down money the next day. Like you got the direction right, but because. You know, the move wasn't big enough or because all the volatility gets sucked out. It just changes. It's Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing about options. There's three components there. With stocks, it's is it going to go up or down? With options, right, do you get the direction, right, the up or down part? Do you get uh, the size of the direction right? And then do you also get the timing of the move right? right? There are definitely additional complexities when it comes to you know, uh, uh, you know, option positions that are based around a single singular event like that. I'm going to throw something at you we didn't talk about today, but it is around volatility. I didn't, I didn't throw on our our uh, our list of topics, but interesting day. VIX was all right. The market was down. Would we close down? It was like I don't know one. So 1.4 percent today. I closed yeah, down my kinda, trading platform. Closed at the bottom, right? Uh, yeah. So recording this on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, Jay, the VIX probably was up what two, three, five, ten percent today, right? I mean, that's normally like a plus so on average. That would be like a plus five or six percent VIX move, right? There'd be a pop in volatility from that normally. Yeah. VIX was down one percent today. Huh. That's interesting news. So. It's a good lesson, like they of what VIX is and what VIX isn't. I mean, it's really Jay. I mean, and you can talk to this. I'll let you take this, but it's like you could have volatility drop when the market drops, but generally they they're inverse. Yeah, right. And and I've done the VIX thing multiple times. I won't do the whole spiel, but right, the VIX represents kind of the people talk about it as the fear index. You and I prefer to call it, you know, the speculative index. So what that means is as the, you know, usually as the market's dropping, people are either speculating it'll drop more or rebound. So they're willing to pay more for options. That pushes the VIX up, right? Options get more expensive. Well, today, even though the market was dropping, interestingly enough, people were not willing to pay more for options or there were a lot of people selling options because, that would insinuate that they thought the uh, options market was expensive. So look, there's, there's times when this happens. It's, it's, uh, you know, throughout actually one point during the day, right? You're right. The, the VIX was down more than a per, down 2% while the market was down 2%. That's kind of unheard of. So 
you know, lots of different ways to interpret that. But, you know, part of it is where the S&P is moving through the option chain and how that math impacts the VIX, but also, you know, how trades were going off. I, you know, if I had to say uh, something about it, it, it seems like a little calm before the the storm, right? Like a compressing VIX in the, in the, um, with the dropping market. I mean, that could be, that could be a, like a not great sign, Derek, right? Like either that or they're taking their hedges off and they thought that was big enough move and maybe it's over. Maybe the volatility is done and no one's willing to pay for it. They just wanted to take off what they, you know, if they had made money from the down move that we had over the last three or four days. This market has definitely had a little lower trend the last three days, pretty three big, uh, three healthy down bars, unhealthy down bars, I'll say. Uh, so yeah, Derek, I think it's it's odd. You usually don't see this two days in a row, let alone three. If we see it again on Monday, uh, that might you know change my mind. That you know, okay, the the selling of the options tells us that the the directional move is is could be could be coming to an end, which means maybe we're bottoming out. But we'll see. Right, Monday's another day. Monday might be very interesting. Weekends are, you know, there's usually a little risk premium in the options going into weekends when there's excessive global turmoil, right, with what's going on in the world. Uh, so again, strange not to see that. Just very odd behavior. I guess we'll know what it means next week. At some point, we'll probably run this ourselves. I did pull up, uh, I found online, somebody did this in, in 2013, and it was the great days with the greatest SPX decline. So the S&P 500, the SPX is the S&P 500 index, with VIX also down. And you mentioned that 2% level. December 18th of 2008, the S&P change was minus 2.12%. The VIX change was minus 2.5%. So, and VIX back then was 47. All right, so that actually isn't 2%. Here I thought I found a great example. They didn't do, this this is a table, I'm calling this a table crime, Jay. Why don't you just do percent on percent, you know? Like <laughs> Here's the thing about your table crime. Like when I look at this table and you look at the VIX positioning, you know, as these down S&P days occur, look at the look at the VIX price, right? How the VIX uh, uh index uh level, right? Very they're all high. They're all high with the exception of this November 1990 that was 20.09, which is more like where we are today. Actually, Derek, that day is almost exact to what we had today, right? Minus one and a quarter on the S and P. Uh, you know, VIX down slightly. Uh, you know, and what happened after that? The next day, the market was kind of flat. Then, and the, then the VIX caught up. Then the VIX went up the next day. But most of these, Derek, when you look at these, there's an elevated VIX already. There's 47, 42, 35, 44, 31, 38. This is these are really high levels uh, for the VIX, so I'm not necessarily surprised. So look, maybe um, you know this was indicating a, a top, but when you look at the next day, the results are it's really hard to incorporate. You know, some days are down another three, some days are up four, up two. Uh, so you know, I think there's a reason you and I have never really dug into this as a real strong indicator, is because the data doesn't point to anything that's certain. It's just, you know, but it doesn't happen often, right? The fact that you could call these things out. When does this go back to? 1990, right? So, uh, you know, it's a couple decades. It only happens a handful of times, right? So it is an oddity, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything, I guess, according to this. But I think you and I will probably dig a little deeper. I feel like that's a 
that's a niche we're going to have. I oh we, yeah, we got to look at this. I feel like I've seen maybe it was from the SIBO or somewhere else that it, it could be as high as twenty percent of the time, just on a on a you know VIX down market down, but the VIX could be down like a penny and the market could be down like three pennies. You know, so you have to sort of filter it for significant moves. Um, yeah, more to come on this because now I'm now I'm intrigued. I think you are as well to see if there's any. It was just, you know, it just stood out, right? For people that are students on the market, this kind of thing just stood out. Not sure what it means necessarily. Historically, there's no absolute trend or even too much of a trend, but it's just, it's just different behavior. Sometimes, I mean, I've seen this too, where, you know, as we know, there's the spot VIX, the one everybody sees on CNBC, and then the VIX futures, which have different expirations, different months, weeks, and things like that. And at some point they sort of converge uh, on, on the day that the, uh, the VIX future uh, goes to, to expiration. The, the question is, of course, does the VIX future go up uh, or does the spot come down to, to sort of meet? That's the question that you can't answer. But uh, sometimes there, there's things like that. Anyway, we'll, we'll do some research on this. Jay, you had also sent me a... Oh, then I got to throw want- you one more. I'm going to throw you a curveball. Oh, so, oh no. Uh, you know, you and I also watch the VVIX, which is the volatility of the VIX, meaning how expensive are the options on the VIX itself, right? So there's options on the VIX, which is options on the S&P. So there you go, second derivative kind of a scenario. But when you look at that, Derek, it hit, it didn't close, but it hit at the highest level uh, at this 117 level since the mini banking crisis we had in March, right? So March 20th, it it hit that level yesterday. It closed at the highest level since then. Today, it exceeded that for a short period of time and then pulled back. So, uh, you know, like the volatility of the options in the VIX is on the rise, right? So that that is one of those things typically that's associated with bets that the VIX will spike. There's a lot of call buying in the VIX to push that up, right? Well, that means the market is fearful or people are speculative on the way down. That usually is uh, uh, a line there. So just thought that was another interesting data point if there's anything else you'd want to add at it. But I just thought I'd I'd throw that in there. Like the VIX hit kind of a new high uh, since for the last six months. And the last time it got that high was the, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and issue. I think I think it's smart to bring it up because you mentioned just a few minutes ago the level of the VIX. And when we were comparing some of those days, the highest days, you know, the biggest down days in the S&P with also a down in VIX. But what that is telling me is that the market makers are not letting people in cheap. Hey, VIX is right around 20. You want to buy VIX calls on some sort of a, a VIX rise or an explosion? You're going to have to pay up for that. And maybe that has to do with how low that VIX level is. That's my initial thought. You threw it at me kind of blindly, but that's where I'm thinking. I think that that was a good answer on the fly. Good job, Professor. There you go. All right. Let's move on to something else you sent me. And it has to deal with divergence within the markets. And this was a Wall Street Journal article. uh, Not like the old bull market, Jay. All together now, prior to Silicon Valley Bank, Things like the NASDAQ 100, the top Russell, 50 companies, the S&P, the S&P equal weight, Russell 2000, Russell microcap, and the KBW NASDAQ bank index, all sort of, they didn't go up the same amounts, 
But if, if you drew all these lines on a chart, they're all sort of going in the same direction. Jay, Silicon Valley. I mean, they're, yeah, they're all just overlapping each other almost you know, perfectly, right? Everything was moving perfectly. In SVB, yep. SVB fails, and now it's like the old Sesame Street. Which of these is not like the other, right? <laughs> well, and then they just, boom, they all go in different directions. It's like a scattergun, right? It's just very, very different set of returns after that event. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll even, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. NASDAQ 100, the NDX, which includes obviously the Magnificent Seven, which everybody's hot on, up 40% since that time. The, the S&P itself close to about 20%. The Russell 2000, right? The Russell index, small cap index, basically flat. I think it's up 5% on this chart. Then you start to look at the micro caps, which are negative, negative eight. Then, of course, the, and the, 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 the bank, the KBW, NASDAQ bank index, down 20 since that event. That, that one's not so surprising because of the bank risk. But the very different set of returns um, since that event. Now, I, as I also read through the article, this is something we always talk about a little bit uh, internally, um, but it's nice to see somebody put it in print. You know, usually a bull market needs or is led by the financials and the small caps, right? The Russell and the banks lead out of uh, out of a, out of a bear market and help drive the bull. That did not happen this time around. Actually, the Russell's really knocking on the door of the lows of last year, Derek. I don't know if you've looked at a chart of it lately. The, the rut, that's the uh, the index that we use for that. I mean, not not pretty, right? I'm just, I'm pulling it up right now as we're talking. When I look at that chart and I go back a year, like it's at the low, it's at a 12-month low. I guess I got to blow this out a little farther when I look at three years. It is approaching the lows of September last year, right? So very different story. So if this truly is the beginning of a bull market, this one will not be like others in the past that were led by the Russell or led by the financials. Don't you think, Jay, that the Russell, a lot of those companies are having the impact of higher rates more? I mean, a lot of those companies have debt, right? I mean, yeah. And maybe a lot of times the bull starts because the Fed cuts rates, right? And all of a sudden the, the balance sheet of those small cap uh, stocks looks a lot better, right? They they're, they're, they don't, They have to... They don't have as much uh, payment to service their debt, and that's not going to be the case this time, right? So I think that's obviously a lot of it, Derek. I agree with you, but you know, I, I'm not sure people realize how much the the you know how bad the small caps are doing this year. Well, you even look at uh, Tobias Carlyle had put a, a chart out on Twitter, the S and P Equal Weight Index. So that's where every company in there is weighted the same, whether it's Apple, whether it's Yeti coolers or Yeti, who makes the coolers. I guess they make other stuff. I like Yetis. I got a Yeti yeah. in my office. But they're they're in the S&P 500. Did you know that? I think they are. Yeah. I don't yeah. have anything interesting in my office, Yeti, though. Maybe I should work on that. All right. It's maybe they should. Water. Well, we don't take sponsors. So I was going to say maybe they'll sponsor the show. <laughs> I, I, I would press you to get Yeti to have a sponsorship. I don't know how many Yetis I have. Well, look, you live in a hot state. You must have Yetis in your house. Oh, we have Yetis. Yeah, no, we, we do. Getting back to the chart at hand, uh, the Tobias Carlisle This says, message brought to you by Yeti Coolers. All right, go ahead. <laughs> well, you remember Mike Mike Puck when he he had uh, sat in your, your chair on one of the episodes. You know, we do the recommendations at the end. He recommended like the the uh, air conditioning company, 
that that put either put in a new air condition. I'm like, really? You know, there's people all over the world. He's given a local, uh, you know, pitch to to his air condition. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> his local service guy. That's awesome. Yeah, in like yeah, Miami, you know, or so. All right, back yeah, to the chart. Right. So sixty, it's down sixteen percent since the start of the drawdown almost twenty three months ago, where the S and P is down eleven point six. So the point is, like the breadth of this market is, it's not it's not very strong. And I think your your uh, article that you pointed me to the divergence that we're seeing in some of this stuff, like below the magnificent seven, it's been a little rocky. I mean, it's equal weight is down for the year. Equal weight is down for the year. So like digest that for everybody, right? Like generally stocks are actually down for the year, right? But look, this is why you buy the index. So you don't have to pick your stocks. We've talked about that a lot of times, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not rosy. I don't know how many, you know, folks that I, I speak to, we just had our quarterly reviews, right? Derek, you talked to a lot of your clients. I did too. And you know, there is not definitely this quarter felt different than last quarter, right? Meeting in the middle of July versus now meeting in the middle of October. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's this. You know, could be. You know, it goes back to the the data that we talked about a few uh, podcasts ago, which was look going forward, the regularity of ten percent S and P years might be might be over, right? It might be more like five for a while, right? Like you just you know you don't know, right? But Certainly people are feeling a little bit now. I personally was hoping that earnings would pull us out of this, uh, right? Kind of, look, August being down, fine. September being down, yeah, almost most years it is. But now that we're, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through October, eh, maybe October is going to be down too, right? So I don't know, Derek, you, you, you've, you've brought this up before that just the environment and some of the leading indicators, the long leading indicators may say that, you know, the rah-rah years uh, of equities, um, we might not have one of those for a little while. But on the flip side, you look at earnings estimates, and I just went back and I said, you know, the, the forward 12 months are higher now than they've been at any point going back to, I think, the middle or start of 2021. Jay, as of October 19th, the per share estimate is $240. So just to kind of simplify this, a year ago, when we say, what's the, the forward four quarter or 12 month estimate, it would have been from October of 22 through October of 23. So now it's October 19th to 23. Over the next 12 months, all the earnings that come out, what's the estimate? It's 240. You know, on a, if I round the S&P down to 4,200, 240 is a 17 and a half forward multiple. It's not crazy. It's not. I mean, it's not. I mean, I mean, so this is like some good news and margins haven't collapsed completely. They're still holding up. So I always say, and you always say, I mean, earnings beyond all else drive things. I remind people that 2022 is a bear market year when earnings went up. They just didn't go up that much. It was a multiple contraction. So what you need to see in this market is earnings to continue the estimates to, to continue higher or stay firm. You want to see actual earnings continue to be strong. They've been beating so far. And if Q3 comes in as well as it's expected in Q4, you could have positive earnings again for 2023. But you need people to be willing to pay more for future earnings. Part of that is, is interest rates. As interest rates go up, the discounted cash flows that come from future earnings 
aren't worth as much when you discount them back to the present. But above all else, like you want earnings. Like this would be a different conversation if we said, oh, earnings are down 20%. Earnings are going to be down 25%. No, no. Earnings are not down 25%. They're up year over year. They're up. Earnings and interest rates, the two things that drive the markets, right? And this is a biggie. This absolutely matters. How much companies make uh, drives uh, stock market moves. No doubt about it. It's nice to see that it's up. Uh, I'm not I, – I, I'm going to throw this in there. So why am I the – I'm the downer today, Derek. Like, Don't be the downer. Like, uh, Things are good. Do you know uh, net worth? The Fed just released their, uh, their uh, median net worths through the survey in 2022. Everyone has more net worth. I'll get to that later in another episode, but things are good. Things are good. Things are dangerous sometimes around the world, but. Let's leave it. Things are good. I'll leave it that way. That's totally fine. All right. By the way, uh, what happened with the Cybertruck? Did, did Elon say like, they're not going to make it or I don't know. I, no, I, missed I think that. he said it's, uh, it's going to come out in November. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. All it's right. coming out in November. I, look, the big drawdown on Tesla was, you know, expected 17% margin and they came out with a 7% margin. Like it was just, mm-hmm. it really was not great. Hey, earnings. Does it relate to earnings? Yeah. Stock went down. Yeah. There you go. I almost think he's, he's either playing the long game or he's like, you know what? We're going to reduce all our cost, and we're just going to continue to own the space. And we don't care if we don't maximize margins and the Fords, the GMs, all, I mean, Tesla on the EV side still has a, I mean, they're the biggest player. They're the most important player. I don't, I don't know what, you know, that's what people want. So it's, uh, it's kind of one of those things, you know, they have the margins to, to cut. So. Yeah. Look, we, we have a client who put a Tesla roof on his new house. He loves it. He's got like the Tesla walls, the batteries in the walls, right? And he stores up energy during the day, uses it at night. Said there's a cool little um, dashboard that he gets to watch how much energy he's he's building up. It's like he's very he's very happy with his Tesla roof and Tesla walls. So you know maybe it's more than the car story. I don't know what that you know. I don't, who knows what's going to happen with the stock? But it's just uh, yeah, Cybertruck looks feels like that's cool. a good thing in general, right? Yeah. I think we all hope that that works. I guess unless you're Exxon. Well, maybe they even hope. Who knows? Well, Sorry if you hold Exxon. <laughs> oh, see, that's a whole lot of the discussion. The, all, like right, supp- all right. Supply, you want me to get it? I'll pull my supply and demand. My, uh, my, no, no, my no, but by curse. the way, that was in the news the last couple of days, right? Like, oh, the, the U.S. has drawn down their supply. And I just said, you have been listening to Derek, who's been talking about it for weeks and months. I do. I do talk about it for weeks and months. All right, Jay. Uh, last week, you missed a, a, a really good recommendation. So I'll give it to you live again. It's Reptile on uh, Netflix. So the audience last week got that. I enjoyed that. Uh, that It's a movie. So it's not a show, not a big commitment. Justin Timberlake, Benicio Del Toro. Alicia Silverstone is in it. I haven't seen her name wow. in, in a while. But I, I'm, uh, I'm giving it a, a strong buy recommendation. So reptile, reptile, okay, reptile. Yep. Uh, I have another one, but what, what do you got this week? You're probably watching stuff on the plane. No, no, it was, they were early flights, so I slept on planes. Uh, it's a little bit of uh, one that uh, I watched once, and I think I ended up really liking it enough that I'm going to have 
my wife watched it with me. I'm willing to watch it again. It's Severance from Apple. So it's old, and I think the second season is coming out. So it's good to kind of catch up on it. Very, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you watched it. You're an Apple guy, Apple TV guy. I, haven't there, se- I know what it is. I haven't seen it Yeah, It's good? I'd like say it. watch it. Say why. I'm going to definitely watch when the second season comes out, which I think it's coming shortly. So catch up on it. Uh, sticking with Apple TV, I started to watch the morning show. I'm unsure of it yet. I'm giving it a hold recommendation right now, but more to come no, on. I that. give it a buy. You should watch oh, it. Oh, you give it a buy? Okay. Yeah. I'm only through I'm in the like middle the of first... season three right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, watch, watch, watch it with your wife. Oh, she's, she's already watched watch. it. She, oh, she, she already watched she, she just wants you to get caught up. See, I knew she would like it. I was she's like, is it any good? She's like, yeah, you should watch it. And I, so we'll see. I'm early into it. I'll more to come there. It's a whole recommendation think, for me right no, now. I think but, it was a yeah. little more powerful. The parallels were more powerful uh, a few years ago, but uh, they do a good job of aligning with current events on a lot of their topics. Not exactly, but, you know, sounds like it smells like it. Right. So, yes, you should watch it. John it Hamm is in this me, season, and I like John oh, Hamm. See, he ruined it for me, Jay. I didn't know he was coming. I, I would have yeah, known. Season three. You got, you got a ways to go, buddy. Well, now, well, I don't know what he's all about. I got to figure this out. It, you know what it reminds me a little bit is, do you remember, you, one of your recommendations was The Newsroom with um, Jeff, uh, what, is, what is his name? He was in Dumb and Dumber. Jeff Daniels, yeah, which I watched when it was out a couple of years ago. It reminds me, because remember, they used to, they would trail things. They would do things that were a couple of years ago, um, but they would do them as, as sort of current events. So yeah, correct. It was good. They're good. All right. So there you have it. All right. We did it, Jay. We got a lot of, a lot of material there. Lots going on in the market. Uh, we definitely will have to look at this, uh, this VIX going down, S and P going down, or maybe the inverse. We'll, we'll come up with something on there. Take a we'll look see. At the, we're gonna at the we're data. gonna throw it into our our little VIX trigger machine and see what pops out. Yep, and Netflix, not Netflix. Meta is coming up the big one next week, right? Uh, lots of earnings next week, right? I think Microsoft, Meta, Google might be in there. Alphabet for those of you that like to call it that. Yeah, yeah, big tech earnings. Uh, you know, week of the twenty third. So we'll see. We'll see if it, see if it can turn the market like it has turned many other times. Very good. All right, everyone. We'll uh, be back next week with more hilarious hilarity and insights into markets and the economy. How's that for a close, Jay? I mean, I don't know why I want that. Let's just close. See you, everyone. Hilarity? Bye. Bye. <laughs>